Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, January 10th, 2014. We will be presenting our 32nd installment on the Book of Acts. I pray it was worth it. And it began back on April 12th. We will have it probably two installments after this one, two more. This is the book of Acts, Acts chapter 26. And we will get right down to it. Discussing Acts chapter 25, we saw that upon the assumption to the office of procurator in Judea, Porcius Festus, by Porcius Festus, he reviewed the case of Paul of Tarsus, whom Felix had left bound for two years. Festus then admitted that Paul had done nothing worthy of death or bonds, but would not release him since he did not want to show the Judeans any disfavor. Paul was therefore compelled to appeal to Caesar, since Festus only offered him a trial in Jerusalem, which Paul, being a Roman citizen, could not be compelled to accept. Ostensibly, Paul was destined to go to Rome. As we had been informed by the account in Acts, but if Paul had submitted to the Judeans, then by no means would he, would he have escaped with his life, since they were desiring to kill him unlawfully if they could not have their way with him otherwise. When Herod Agrippa II arrived in Caesarea, evidently to see the new procurator, Festus, Festus told Agrippa of Paul, and Agrippa is portrayed as having exclaimed that he had been wanting to hear Paul speak. Certainly, accounts of the episodes related to Paul's arrest and his defenses before the Hebrews and before Felix, must have been heard by Agrippa in Jerusalem. With Agrippa wanting to hear Paul, and with Festus being in need of an account of the charges against Paul, so that he could write to Nero, explaining why Paul had been sent to him, Paul is therefore given an opportunity to address not only Agrippa, but, as Luke tells us, the commanders and eminent men of the city. Since Caesarea was a large city, there must have been a considerable crowd present in addition to those whom Luke mentions specifically. It's important to understand this. A lot of the critics of Paul taking this this account, without really examining it closely, have, acu have seen only three characters here and, and perhaps a couple of peripheral characters and have accused Paul of trying overtly to convert the Edomite Jew Herod Agrippa to Christianity. That's not what's going on here at all. Because Herod 
had wanted to hear Paul, and because Festus needed to quantify the charges against Paul, Festus had a perfect opportunity to do that while Herod would have his wish fulfilled. From Paul's perspective, as we, applied, as we explained at length last week, this gave Paul the opportunity to defend his Christian position and his faith before a large multitude of people. That's really what's going on here. And, and the critics of Paul, they really don't take the time to examine this account and, and its details in order to discover what it really is. Paul is given a great opportunity here to speak before many, many people and, and, and to actually speak in a manner that would be civilized where with the Roman government and, and this king who is actually pretty popular in Judea, there wouldn't be a riotous mob like there was with his address in in the court of the temple before the Roman encampment to the to the um, Judeans who wanted to, to to just kill him right there that he had several years before. So Paul isn't trying to convert Agrippa. He's really just trying to take advantage of this great situation to address his fellow Hebrews. When I say the Hebrews, I mean the real Israelites in Judea. So, so that's what's important to him. Since Caesarea was a large city, 125,000, what was the estimated population, there must have been a considerable crowd present in addition to those whom Luke mentioned specifically. Of course, Luke's account always tracks only the central characters. Further evidence of this is seen in Acts chapter 25 and verse 23, where Luke says that Agrippa, who being the king of a neighboring country, is actually a visiting dignitary, Agrippa, along with his sister, or, or perhaps his sister-wife, Bernike, had entered into the auditorium with much fanfare, as Luke described the event. This auditorium, the, the, the word is literally place of hearing, as the King James Version has translated it. This auditorium where this spectacle was conducted was most likely the local theater or stadium, buildings which were quite common throughout the Roman Empire. If we remember back to, um, I think it was Acts chapter 18 or, or perhaps 19, when Paul was charged by the silversmiths at Ephesus, this is Acts 18, I think, when he was charged by the silversmiths at Ephesus, those of his company were brought to the local theater, the Greek word being theatron, where the people were accustomed to assemble for such events. There is such a theater at Caesarea which remains until this day. It's an archaeological relic believed to be the very theater that was built by the first Herod before 10 BC when he built the city and that theater seated as many as 4,000 people. 
that is very probably the place where this event occurred. You, you could Google that and, and look it up, the, the ancient theater at Caesarea. I'll have a link to it in the notes to this podcast, in, in the, note, the commentary to this podcast when it's posted at Christagenia. From the end of Acts chapter 25, after all of the parties are assembled to witness Paul's defense, I'll read from verse 24. Festus said, King Agrippa and all those men who are here with us, see him concerning whom all the multitude of the Judeans entreated me both in Jerusalem and here, crying out that it is no longer fitting for him to live. But I comprehended him to have done nothing worthy of death, yet he himself, having appealed to Sebastus, meaning Nero Caesar in this case, I have decided to send him concerning which I do not have anything certain to write with authority, on which account I have brought him before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, that upon there being an examination, I would have something that I may write, for it seems to me irrational, sending a prisoner and not indicating the charges against him. Considering Festus's statement, at verse 24 of that chapter, which we just read, it is evident that the only way to preserve Paul beyond this point would be to send him in bonds to Rome. There's no doubt that the Jews, the Judeans in Jerusalem, wanted to kill him. I call them Jews because they're the those who rejected Christ, and that's who the Jews of today are descended from, there's no doubt. With this, Luke records Paul's discourse at the opening of chapter 26. More fully, they should be called Edomite Jews. Luke chapter 26, verse 1. And Agrippa said to Paul, It is permitted for you to speak concerning yourself. Then Paul, extending the hand, spoke in reply, the form of an rhetorician at the time, an orator, concerning all things of which I am charged by the Judeans, King Agrippa, I regard myself blessed for being about to speak in defense before you today, especially since, and some, in, some manuscripts interpolate the words knowing that, especially since you are one that knows all of the customs and disputes among the Judeans, on which account I beg, and see the, the Codex Ephraimi Siri in the majority text interpolate the words for you, I beg for you to hear me patiently. The same verb, apologiomahi, is to speak in reply at the end of verse 1 and to speak in defense near the end of verse 2. The word is the root of our English word apology, which is properly a speech in defense of something. While Festus represents the sovereign authority of Rome, in his opening address he explained why he acceded to Agrippa 
in this matter. While Agrippa has no real authority in Judea, outside of the temple administration, he still commands the respect of a king, whether one should respect an Edomite or not, since he was made a king by the emperor. Paul therefore addresses Agrippa throughout his discourse, and he is obliged to do so according to protocol. So Paul's not really speaking for Agrippa's personal benefit. He's speaking for the benefit of the wider group of people. He's obliged because of the formal circumstances, the formalities of the circumstances, he's obliged to address Agrippa. However, that does not mean that Paul really imagines Agrippa to be a prospective convert to Christ. Rather, as we pointed out while presenting Acts chapter 25, it was Paul's philosophy to preach the gospel of Christ, whether Christ was loved or hated by the hearers of that gospel. And, and in that manner, all men would be found speaking of Christ, even his enemies. From that philosophy, which Paul himself explains fully in the opening chapter of his epistle to the Philippians, Paul therefore must have seen this occasion as an opportunity to preach the gospel of Christ before a multitude of people in spite of Herod and all the Edomites and not on account of them. This is an error which the Paul bashers make narrowing this event down to the central characters only and accusing Paul of wanting to convert Edomites to Christianity. That's not what's going on here at all. The Paul bashers second-guess Paul's motives rather than reading what Paul himself says of them. Verse 4. Now indeed, my manner of living from youth, which had from the first been among my nation and in Jerusalem, all the Judeans know, knowing me from the beginning, if they would wish to testify, that according to the most precise sect of our worship, I have lived a Pharisee. Paul, having been educated in the school of such a prominent teacher of the law as Gamaliel, as we see him profess in Acts chapter 22, there must have been contemporaries of his here among the leaders of the Judeans who knew him from his school days and then as a young man. That there should be little doubt The, the Gamaliel being the equivalent of one of the elite schools at the time that the rulers of, of, of the Judeans would want to attend his schools. And I'm certain that's the case here and, and fits Paul's description in these verses. Verse 6. And now for the hope of the promise having been made by Yahweh. 
To our fathers I stand being judged, for which our twelve tribes, serving in earnest, day and night, hope to attain, concerning which hope I am charged by the Judeans, O king, or king. And the majority text adds the word Agrippa. Our twelve tribes, having promised the promise having been made by God to our fathers. And the majority text only has the fathers, but it doesn't really matter. Here the importance of this verse can't be underestimated. Here, at least 27 years after the passion of the Christ, and well over 15 years after the vision of Peter, Paul makes a definite statement against universalism as we know it by telling us explicitly that the promises for which he ministered belong to the Israelite patriarchs and to the twelve tribes of Israel, as Clifton likes to say, in regards to this very verse, Paul did not say Israel and the Gentiles. He only said the twelve tribes of Israel. It is ironic that with such words he addresses a man who is actually an Edomite. It is ridiculous to think that a so-called church consisting of non-Israelites could replace Israel and then be reckoned by tribes. A spiritual, the, the, the contrived spiritual Israel cannot be reckoned by tribes. You don't join a tribe, not in reality, unless you're born into it. The reference to the twelve tribes can only be a reference to the genetic people of Israel. The book of Acts, as we have often pointed out in this series of presentations, is a record of a religious transition. It records a transition from the rituals of Moses to the faith in Christ, and from the dispensation of the Levitical priesthood to the reconciliation of dispersed Israel. However, as for these assertions concerning the promises to our fathers and the hope of our twelve tribes, it is evident that the one area where there was absolutely no transition is that the covenants and the promises remain exclusively for the genetic children of Israel. The dispersed Israelites were uncircumcised pagans. And that is the reason why Peter had his vision. So that he would know to bring the gospel to such people. The Romans too had sprung from Israel. As Paul demonstrates in his epistle to them and Cornelius, the first converted so-called Gentile was one of them. It is absolutely amazing 
that the Roman Catholic Church and all of the supposedly reforming organizations which followed after it have ignored the recorded transition away from a reliance upon rituals, contrary to Scripture. Sure, their rituals are different, but they still rely on rituals. While at the same time, they insist upon a transition away from the people of God, which is also contrary to Scripture. Everything they have done is wrong. In the end, however, the ignorance of men will magnify the glory of Yahweh. Where it is common knowledge that only a small portion of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi ever returned to Palestine, Yet the words hope and serving in relation to the twelve tribes are in the present tense here where Paul says for which our twelve, twelve tribes serving present tense in earnest night and day hope present tense to attain. Yet practitioners of Judaism are scarcely to be found outside of both the general Judean population and the Hellenistic diaspora of the Judeans, who were all well recorded by the ancient historians. Yet James also addressed his epistle to the twelve tribes scattered abroad, none of whom were identified at this time by their ancient national or tribal names. And the Apostle John in his Gospel informed us that one purpose of Christ was to gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. The same Christ who came only unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The language here in Acts is a certain confirmation that the so-called Gentiles, or properly the nations to whom Paul brought the gospel and the lost tribes of Israel, were one and the same. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, after informing the Corinthians that their ancestors had been with Moses in the Exodus, Paul tells them, from verse 18, Behold, Israel, down through the flesh. <clears throat> that word is, that, that phrase is kata, sarka, and very often the King James Version and other versions translate that phrase according to the flesh. Behold, Israel, according to the flesh. Are not those who are eating the sacrifices partners of the altar? What then do I say, that that which is sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? Rather, that whatever the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to Yahweh. Now I do not wish for you to be partners with demons. An examination of that passage proves that the nations 
or the Gentiles in verse 20 are Israel according to the flesh not those Edomite imposters in Jerusalem pretending to be Israel once more the language here is a certain confirmation that the nations to whom Paul brought the gospel and the so-called lost tribes of Israel were one and the same. They were not practicing Hebraism or especially the corruption which became known as Judaism. They were not practicing those things because they were pagans. We're told all throughout the books of the prophets that they went off chasing strange gods and practicing things associated with paganism until this very day. As we have seen here in Acts, Paul addressed the other nations of the Greek world which did not descend from the Israelites, namely the Lycaonians and the Ionians, in a manner befitting nations under the promises to Adam and to Noah, but who did not have Christ. He didn't say anything about mercy, the law, or obedience in Christ, or any of that to the Lycaonians or to the Ionians in Athens. On the other hand, throughout his epistles, he displayed an understanding of which nations of the Greek world did descend from scattered Israel. The Ionians and the Lydians and the Phrygians were not Israel. The Romans and the Dorians and the Galatians and the Scythians were Israel. And Paul accounts them as such. The evidences of these things are found in the prophets and in the classics. You need them both. There is a prophecy in reference to this, the scattering of Israel, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, a warning of the result of Israel's disobedience. Back in Deuteronomy, when that book was written, there was no such thing as Romans. There was no such thing as Dorians. There was no such thing as Galatians. There was no such thing as Scythians or Germans. Of course, there are aboriginal archaeological remains in the steppe, but they didn't necessarily belong to the Scythians of the historic period. The German origins, a series of papers at Christagenia demonstrates that. The prophecy in reference to the scattering of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 28 
a warning of the result of Israel's disobedience from verse 64. And Yahweh shall scatter thee among all people from the one end of the earth even unto the other. And there thou shalt serve other gods which neither thou nor thy fathers have known even wood and stone. Scattered Israel was to be pagan in their punishment. The fulfillment of this prophecy is evident throughout the books of the prophets and it is a story which was explicitly recorded in Amos, in Hosea, in Isaiah and later in Ezekiel and Jeremiah as well as other prophets where it is not so explicit or where the language is more veiled such as Micah. In Ezekiel chapter 20 the word of Yahweh says from verse 23 I lifted up mine hand unto them also in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them through the countries because they had not executed my judgments but had despised my statutes and had polluted my Sabbaths and their eyes were after their father's idols the people in the wilderness are the descendants of the people who were taken into captivity for idolatry by the Assyrians. Daniel also prophesied of this scattering in chapter 12 of his book. And I heard the man clothed in linen which was upon the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven and swore by him that liveth forever that it shall be for a time times and a half and when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people all these things shall be finished these things, this scattering of Israel, these things happened in the 8th through the 6th centuries B.C. They had nothing to do with any so-called Jews. However, these same prophets who forbode the scattering also prophesied of the future gathering of Israel. For instance, in Jeremiah 31, the very same place where we find the promise of the new covenant, we see this in verse 10. Hear the word of Yahweh, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him 
as a shepherd does his flock. For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. The people of the isles afar off must have been scattered Israelites, or all of this would be meaningless to them. What's the point of addressing them? What's the point of addressing Malaysians with something that has to do with the history of Israelites? The people of the Isles of Far Off, in the context of Jeremiah, must have been scattered Israelites. And it was them our twelve tribes to whom Paul brought the gospel as Jeremiah prophesied and as Paul announces here. In the scattering of Israel we had the fulfillment of many other promises. Promises and blessings made to each of the twelve tribes of Israel we see them in several places in Genesis chapter, I believe it's 48 and 49. It might be 49 and 50 for all I know. These promises and blessings made to the 12 tribes of Israel can all be summarized in Yahweh's promises to Jacob, which are seen in Genesis chapter 35. From verse 10, And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. And God said unto him, I am a mighty God. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and the company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. And the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac to thee I will give it, and to thy seed after thee will I give the land. A nation, a company of nations, kings coming out of his loins. Likewise, keeping the scattering of Israel in mind, and those promises that they would be a nation and a company of nations, Likewise, Yahweh told his enemies in Luke chapter 13, There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. The children of God certainly weren't Judea. In Genesis chapter 15, we see a childless Abraham proposed to Yahweh a substitute heir. And God rejected him, where it says from verse 1, 
After these things, the word of Yahweh came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield, and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord, Yahweh, what will thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of Yahweh came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he, meaning Abraham, believed in Yahweh and he counted it to him for righteousness when did he believe in Yahweh when he was told that his seed his offspring from his bowels would become as numerous as the stars of heaven Abraham believed Yahweh that his heir would come from his own loins. Abraham also believed Yahweh when he was told that his seed would be as numerous as the stars. What Abraham believed is important to us because what Abraham believed, that is the faith of Abraham. Of course, that seed could only come from his own loins as Jacob, his grandson. And an heir to these promises was later told by Yahweh that, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. Genesis 35.11 the denominational churches of today do not believe what Abraham believed. They do not have the faith of Abraham. They fill their pews, their coffers, and their bellies with substitutes, something that Abraham was told would not happen. Paul taught, that the nations to which he brought the gospel were the fulfillment of that very promise to Abraham in Romans chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, from of the faith, that in, that in accordance with favor, then the promise is to be certain to all of the offspring, all of the seed, not to that of the law only, <clears throat> by which Paul meant the remnant of Israelites in Judea who kept the law, 
but also to that of the faith of Abraham. Meaning, well, let's go back to see what Abraham believed. Meaning, those who descended from his loins. Those whom Abraham believed would be descended from him as Yahweh God had promised. But also to those of the faith of Abraham who is father of us all. Just as it is written that a father of many nations I have made you before Yahweh, whom he trusted, who raises the dead to life and calls things not existing as existing. Now, this is an important passage because Negroes clearly existed at the time of Abraham. Chinamen clearly existed at the time of Abraham. Those nations sprung from Abraham's loins. They didn't exist yet. God said they would exist. That's why Paul said, and called things not existing as existing. There are no substitutes for Abraham's seed. You can't take Negroes out of the jungle and say, oh, you're one of the Abraham's seed if you believe Jesus. That's ridiculous. These nations descended from Abraham didn't exist in 2000 B.C. There were no Germans. There were no Dorian Greeks. There were no Danan Greeks. There were no Romans in 2000 B.C. There were no Englishmen. There may have been some aboriginal people in England. They weren't today's Englishmen. Forerunners are not ancestors. Who contrary to expectation, in expectation believed, for which he would become a father of many nations. According to the de declaration, this seals it, thus your offspring, thus your seed will be. Those of the faith of Abraham are those whom, as God had promised, Abraham believed would come from his loins. They are the genetic children of Israel. If you are not one of these, then you cannot be one of those of the faith of Abraham. Because wherever else you may have come from, Abraham did not believe in you. The clause referring to those of the faith of Abraham has nothing to do with what you believe. And it has everything to do with what 
Abraham believed. God says that Abraham's seed would become many nations. The denominational sects pervert that and teach that many nations could become Abraham's seed. But that is not what God told Abraham. Those nations descended from the twelve tribes of Israel. Those are the nations to whom Paul brought the gospel. Paul taught fulfillment theology, not replacement theology. But fulfillment theology is grounded in historical truth. And that is the basis for our Christian identity profession. We are the only true Christianity accepting the gospel as it was received from the apostles. If one wishes to be of the faith of Abraham, it's real simple. You don't have a choice in the matter. One has to be born of the result of what God promised to Abraham. That is what Abraham had faith in. Otherwise, if Abraham is not your genetic father, then you cannot be of his faith because you did not result from that promise which he believed, and therefore you are not one of his seed. These promises and the later covenants, there's no doubt, they're all exclusive to Israel. And that biblical principle certainly has not changed. And that's fully evident here. In the words of Paul of Tarsus, Acts 26, verses 6 and 7, 27 years after the resurrection of the Christ. Verse 8. Why is it judged incredible by you if Yahweh raises the dead? Paul addressing, continuing to address Agrippa. The hope which the twelve tribes had was in a resurrection into a new life in the kingdom of God. Resurrection and restoration in the kingdom of God is the Christian hope. And while eternal life was promised to the entire Adamic race, Genesis 3.22, the bearers of that promise have always been the children of Israel. From Psalm 16, from verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices, 
My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Likewise, in Isaiah chapter 25, the prophet said, He will swallow up death in victory, and Yahweh God will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for Yahweh has spoken it. In the end, according to the revelation of Yahshua Christ himself, death and hell go into the lake of fire. One of my favorite passages from the wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2. For God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity, a reference to our Adamic race, of course. Verse 9, Paul continuing his address to Agrippa. Now then, I myself supposed it necessary regarding the name of Yahshua, the Nazorian, to do many things against which even I had done in Jerusalem, and that many of the saints I had shut up in prison, receiving authority from the high priests, and upon their being slain, I had cast a vote. That's an important clause. And throughout all the assembly halls, many times punishing them, I compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly mad at them, pursued them even as far as the cities outside. The cities outside, that's a literal translation of the Greek phrase, referring to those cities outside of Judea, for example, Damascus. The King James Version has strange cities. Actually, Damascus couldn't have been a strange city. It was in... It was subject to the children of Israel from the time of David until the time of the Assyrian invasions. The ASV has foreign cities. That's a little better. Paul recounts his persecution of the Christians in Damascus, which is recorded in part in Acts chapter 9 and recounted again in part in Acts chapter 22. Each of these accounts are concise, and none of them necessarily represents a complete description of the events being recalled. Those details, along with his accounts of his conversion, which accompanies these accounts, they only represent what Luke chose to record of those explanations which Paul offered at any given time. Critics of the Book of Acts 
should sit and reflect upon an event from their own lives, from their recent past, and summarize it in five or six sentences. Putting that record away and without looking at it, 15 or 20 years later, they should do that same thing again, describing that same event from years ago in five or six sentences. Perhaps a couple of years later, they should repeat that act one more time. Then, with three brief descriptions of the same event, they should make a comparison of what they wrote and see how closely the three records agree. Once they are translated correctly, meaning these three accounts of Paul's persecution of Christians and his own conversion, there is no conflict in any of Paul's descriptions. However, we have three different recollections of the same events recounted many years apart from one another. And then those reflections are recorded rather concisely by another party, which is Luke. It is amazing that they are found to be accurate at all. But they are indeed accurate. It is only evident that different aspects of these events stood out in Paul's memory each time he repeated them. So we see slightly different details brought to light on each occasion. We need to combine the three records in order to get a somewhat more complete picture of what had transpired. Here we learn that while under the authority of the officers of the temple, Christians were being arrested and given trials before they were executed, where Paul says that upon their being slain, I had cast a vote. And thereby we see that the persecution of Christians and their executions were indeed being conducted under a pretense of legal authority and judiciousness. These are perhaps the first recorded Jewish show trials, right after the manner of Nuremberg. Continuing with Paul's discourse, Verse 12, upon which things going into Damascus with the authority and the commission of the high priests, I saw at midday during the journey, king, shining around me and those traveling with me, a light from heaven beyond the brilliance of the sun. And midday in Damascus, in such a climate, you would think the sun was pretty strong, so this must have been some light. And upon all of us falling down to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me. And the majority text interpolates the words and saying, In the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the pricks. As for the saying, it is hard for you to kick against the pricks. This is a phrase 
it's being attributed to Christ here. This is a phrase from classical Greek literature. It was a figure of speech, and it may be rendered, it is hard for you to offer vain resistance. The phrase is found in many works of classical Greece, I'm sorry, Aeschylus, Prometheus Bound, Agamemnon, Pindar's Pythian Odes, Euripides's Bacche. It was used as late as the Emperor Julian in his orations. Verse 15. And I said, Who are you, Master? And the Prince said, the majority text in the King James Version have only he said, I am Yahshua, whom you persecute. But you must arise and stand upon your feet, for this have I appeared to you, for you to be a chosen assistant and witness, both of the things you have seen by me and of the things I shall reveal to you taking you out from among the people and from the nations to whom I send you. That last clause of verse 16 is most literally, rather than end of the things I shall reveal to you, most literally and of the things for which I shall appear to you. The King James Version in that case is literally accurate. I thought the language rather clumsy when the entire passage is considered. Reveal is an alternate translation of the verb. The verb exahirio, Strong's number 1807, in the appropriate tense and with the appropriate pronoun, is rendered as taking you out at the beginning of verse 17. In this context, it could more fully be rendered to take someone out from among others, to pick out or to choose, so it may have been selecting you. or choosing you. The word has other nuances of meaning in other contexts. However, here where it appears with the phrase from among the people and from among the nations, its meaning is quite clear. The language employed is very explicit. Paul was chosen out from a much wider group of people than even those in Judea. The King James Version did not fairly assess this verb. In the historical context, when Paul had his vision on the road to Damascus, he had no immediate need to be delivered. Rather, Paul was chosen out from among the people by Yahweh 
for his particular mission. It is also clear from this statement that Paul was not chosen from among the Judeans only, but rather Paul was chosen out of the people in general who are the people of those same nations to whom he was sent. In other words, by this language, the nations to whom Paul was sent are placed on the same footing as the nation from which Paul originated. The Israelites of Judea therefore have no real advantage over the Israelites of the dispersion. Any of them may have been chosen. That's what the language fully infers here. But Paul happened to be a Judean. This explicit language also reveals that Paul was not sent to just any nations, but to certain nations. Christians have an obligation to examine the words of both Paul and the prophets and to realize just who those nations are. Because the scope of the Bible proves that the white nations of Europe are indeed the people of God. The Bible is not Afrocentric or focused on the Orient. Verse 18. To open their eyes, Paul's chosen out from among the people and from among the nations to which he was sent, to open their eyes for which to turn them from darkness to light and from the authority of the adversary or Satan to God for them to receive a remission of sins and a portion with those being sanctified by the faith which is in me. Christ, during his ministry, professed that his purpose was, in part, to restore sight to the blind. He quoted Isaiah concerning himself in Luke chapter 4, from verse 18, that the Spirit of Yahweh is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the people of the captivities. Back in the books of the prophets and kings and chronicles. And recovering of the sight of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of Yahweh. His curing of blind man, which occurred so often during his ministry, was only a type, an example illustrating his mission. The truly blind people were the people of Israel in their dispersions and in their state of apostasy from Yahweh their God. From Isaiah chapter 42, from verse 5, 
Thus saith Yahweh God, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which comes out of it, he that gives breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein. I, Yahweh, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the nation, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house the captivities, the putting away of Israel from God. The dispersed children of Israel had forgotten their identity as the people of God and were imprisoned as captives in their state of apostasy from him, sitting in darkness. This is described at greater length further on in the same chapter of Isaiah. Let them give glory unto Yahweh and declare his praise, not in Jerusalem, in the islands. Yahweh shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. He shall cry, yeah, roar. He shall prevail against his enemies. I have long time holding my peace. I have been still and refrained myself. Now will I cry like a travailing woman. I will destroy and devour at once. I will make waste mountains and hills. Sounds like Revelation 19 to me. And dry up all their herbs. I will make the rivers islands and I will dry up the pools. And I will bring the blind. Our people are still blind. They might be Christians, but they're still pretty damn blind. And I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them and not forsake them. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed that trust in graven images, that say to molten images, Ye are our gods. Hear ye deaf, and look ye blind, that ye may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect and blind as Yahweh's servant? Isaiah 41, 8, the chapter before this, described Israel as Yahweh's servant and as the seed of Abraham, where it says, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen the seed of Abraham, my friend. The Bible defines the children of Israel in their dispersions from God as the blind and these are the people Paul is telling us that he is sent to. 
the church has no authority to redefine who the blind are, who God's servants are, who those who are in captivity are, as Paul says, for which to turn them from darkness and from the authority of Satan to God or the adversary. Isaiah 42.20 Seeing many things, but thou observest not, opening the ears, but he heareth not. A reference to Israel collectively. Yahweh is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. But this, meaning Israel, is a people robbed and spoiled. They are all of them snared in holes, rabbit holes, sheep holes maybe. And they are hid in prison houses. They are for a prey, and none delivereth, for a spoil, and none saith, Restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will hearken and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for a spoil and Israel to the robbers, meaning the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities? Did not Yahweh, he against whom we have sinned, for they would not walk in his ways, Neither were they obedient unto his law. Therefore he has poured upon him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle, and it has set him on fire round about. Yet he knew not, and it burned him. Yet he laid it not to heart. No matter how much our people are punished, they still don't get it. From Isaiah chapter 43, from verse 1. But now, thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee in their migrations to other lands after the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom. It was overrun with Negroes. Ethiopia and Sheba for thee. They're still overrun with Negroes. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore, I will give men for thee and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east, 
not just anybody, Jacob's seed, and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back, bring my sons and daughters from afar, from the ends of the earth. Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yeah, I have made him bring forth. Paul's announcing that he came to open the eyes and turn those in darkness back to God. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes. And the deaf that have ears. And of course these are all Israel. Let all the nations, the nations, be gathered together. And let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring forth their witness that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, it is truth. Ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, my servant whom I have chosen. Two chapters before this, Isaiah 41.8, Jacob my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me. And understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed. Neither shall there be after me. I, even I am Yahweh, and beside me there is no Savior. Joshua Christ. I have declared and have saved, and I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore, ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, that I am God. Yeah, before the day was, I am He. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? Paul said that he came to open their eyes for which to turn them from darkness to light and from the authority of the adversary to God. For them to receive a remission of sins and a portion with those being sanctified by the faith which is in me. What Paul's doing is fulfilling the words of Yahweh in Isaiah 41 through 43, which were meant only for the children of Israel. Here Paul tells us that this hope and these promises are for the twelve tribes of Israel. Israel. Nobody else. The phrase, those being sanctified, may well have been rendered with those sanctifying themselves, since the verb is in the medium voice, where properly the doer of the action and the recipient of the action are one and the same. 
Christians prepare themselves for sanctification when they accept Yahshua Christ and agree to his gospel and then he cleanses them of their sins. Therefore Paul wrote, quoting in Isaiah, quoting Isaiah again, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, come out from the midst of them, meaning the other people of the world, come out from the midst of them and be separated and do not be joined to the impure and I will admit you. You want God to admit you, you have to separate yourselves from the world's bastards, from the unclean, because only Israel was cleansed on the cross of Christ. From Isaiah chapter 29, Therefore, thus saith Yahweh, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, neither shall his face now wax pale. But when he sees his children, the work of mine hands in the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, and shall fear the God of Israel, that they, that also, that erred in spirit shall come to understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. From Jeremiah chapter 33, just after the promise of the new covenant, Behold, I will bring it health and cure, and I will cure them, and will reveal unto them the abundance of peace and truth. And I will cause the captivity, those who were in the prison houses, I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return and will build them as at the first. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity. Who's being sanctified? by the faith which is in Christ the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel and I will cleanse them from all their iniquity whereby they have sinned against me and I will pardon all their iniquities whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me only the children of Israel were promised the sanctification and the cleansing of sin, which is mentioned here by Paul. It's a moot point for anybody else. Nobody else belongs in this picture at all. Paul also wrote to the Galatians in chapter 4 of that epistle. And when the fulfillment of the time had come, Yahweh had dispatched his son having been born of a woman having been subject to law in order that he would redeem those subject to law meaning the children of Israel even those in the dispersion were still subject to the judgments of the law as the national adulterous wife of Yahweh Paul expounds on that in Romans chapter 7.
from that perspective. In order that he would redeem those subject to law that we would recover the position of sons. Only these people can properly be Christians. Once again, Paul is teaching fulfillment theology. The denominational churches teach replacement theology, which is contrary to the theology of the God of the Bible, and they certainly did not get the idea from Paul. Israel is not a church, but according to Paul here in Acts chapter 26, Israel remains those 12 tribes which had descended from the fathers, the called, the chosen, who are properly the church, an idea explicitly limited to them. Verse 19. Wherefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but to both those in Damascus first, then to those in Jerusalem, then all the region of Judea, and to the nations I announced to repent and to turn to God doing deeds worthy of repentance. As we have it recorded by Luke, Paul quantified his arguments in a manner which made it difficult to actually accuse him of anything, making no threats to the established earthly government of the Romans. Paul spoke in ways that were open to the interpretation of his listeners, where he described the kingdom of God one may envision that as being ethereal in substance rather than material, along with the posthumous resurrection of man and the need to repent from sin on account of that resurrection. While his arguments are not a complete survey of Christian beliefs, and in fact the apostles at the beginning of the book of Acts had wondered whether their Messiah was going to hand over an earthly kingdom of Israel to his children at that time, and he told them that it wasn't theirs to know when that would happen. Paul didn't even get into any of that here, and he didn't need to. While his arguments are not a complete survey of Christian beliefs, Paul nevertheless did not lie, and his statements may be considered to be rather innocuous, he's not really challenging Roman authority directly in this address. Yet he's still effectively defending his Christian faith. Verse 21, Because of these things, the Judeans, seizing me in the temple, attempted to take me in hand. And the King James Version has kill here, that the word is literally to take in hand. It could be to conduct, to manage, to administer. We would say dispatch, and the English idiom would insinuate killing, right? However, obtaining assistance from God, 
unto this day I have stood bearing testimony to the great and the small, saying nothing outside of the things which both the prophets and Moses said are going to happen. Whether the Christ was to suffer, whether first from a resurrection from the dead is a light going to be declared to both the people and to the nations. Paul himself portrays his arrest by the Roman commander and his transport to Caesarea in bonds as a means by which his life was saved and by which he has been able to continue preaching the gospel. And this is further admitted as having been by the providence of God. The argument over whether Christ was to suffer was one that Paul disputed throughout his ministry since Israel expected a conquering Messiah who would deliver them from the Romans and not a suffering Messiah who would die for their sins. The best example in literature of the expectations of the people at this time, and it was probably written at least a few decades before Paul's time, I would say it was probably written by the first or second decade of the, of the Christian era, is the, the, the war scroll found amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. In the war scroll, the sect of the Dead Sea Scrolls, don't call them Nazarenes, they're not Nazarenes. <clears throat> the sect of the Dead Sea Scrolls had expected a Messiah who would lead them to victory in war against the Romans, throwing off the Roman yoke. That's the Messiah that many of the people of Judea obviously expected right from the Gospels. It, it's expressed right in the Gospel of John that the people wanted to seize Christ and make him king. That is, a, it is actually, a, a lot of people gloss over that idea in the Gospels, but that is actually an overt defiance of Roman rule and, and an act of, of sedition and rebellion against Rome if, if they had done that. The importance of that statement is very often overlooked. Verse 24 And upon his speaking these things in reply Festus said with a great voice Paul, you are mad. Your great learning has turned you to madness. The phrase translated great learning is literally many letters or many writings. The Codex Alexandrinus has here for you to know many writings. Festus, being a pagan Roman, and being unaware of the Hebrew Scriptures and not informed of the religious history of the people of Judea could be expected to think that Paul was mad in professing the things which he said here. 
And we see Paul's response, verse 25. But Paul said, I am not mad, as it is said, noble Festus, but the words which I utter are of truth and discretion. For the king knows about these things to whom also I speak, being free spoken. For any of these things to escape his notice, I am not persuaded at all. Indeed, it is not in a corner that this had been done. You do believe, King Agrippa, in the prophets? I know that you believe. Although it may appear to be so on the surface, Paul is not necessarily trying to convert Agrippa here. Rather, as Paul surely knows, he has cornered an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, which all of the family of Herod were. That Paul knew the difference between the Israelites and the Edomites is fully evident from his own words written a long time before this time, at least three years, or about three years, in his epistle to the Romans, and probably about ten years, or eleven, in his epistle, in his second epistle to the Thessalonians. The Edomites in Judea, having been converted to Judaism, and having claimed ever since to be Judeans, dare not deny in public either the prophets or the law. Agrippa couldn't make that denial in public. Instead, Agrippa escapes Paul's challenge with guile, giving the evasive answer which is recorded in verse 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, In brief, do you persuade me to be made a Christian? Now, neither the Nestle land, Novum Testamentum Grece, nor the King James Version read this clause as a question. However, several more modern translations do. So, the, the, the Christogenian New Testament is not the only translation that reads this clause as a question. There's several, the English standard, the, the um, I hate to say it, but the, the Living Bible reads this clause as a question. As it stands in most manuscripts, this clause is clearly a rhetorical question. The phrase anoligo may be read in few words, or it may be read in a little time. Thayer, in his lexicon, would read the phrase as meaning easily. So easily do you persuade me to be made a Christian? That's fine too, that rendering. Because the same term is contrasted to and megalo in verse 29, where I have rendered it as at length, here I have an oligo simply as in brief in both places. 
The Codex Alexandrinus has the verb pytho, which means to persuade, in the subjunctive mood rather than the indicative. So in that manuscript, the clause would have to be rendered as a statement and not as a question. It would have to say, in a few words, you may persuade me to be made a Christian. In other words, he would be close to such a persuasion. Other differences, minor differences occur in some of the other manuscripts. Paul challenged the Edomite king, Herod Agrippa II, with a question regarding whether or not he believed the prophets of God. Just like the typically slick Jewish lawyer, Agrippa evaded answering by asking a question of his own. The only surprise in the discourse, however, is that Agrippa used the term Christian, which most of the Judeans of the time seemed to have avoided using. They preferred the term Nazorian or Nazarene, as we've seen already here in Acts. Notice, however, that Herod imagines that he could be made a Christian. And this, ostensibly, has been an error of many Christians from the beginning. The Christianity was really no different from the other Greek philosophies and Eastern religions, in that one could choose to be a Christian no matter one's origin. That, that's a serious mistake. That that, that that problem is predated by millennia in the confusion over geography and geography and genealogy, which we see in the scripture long before this time. And Paul said, I would have prayed to God that in brief and at length, not only you, but also all those hearing me today are to be such as of this manner that also I am except for these bonds. The Christian hope reflected by the idealism of Paul here is that all men would be obedient to Yahweh our God. This is true even when it is realized that many of them cannot possibly be obedient. Which is evident where John the Baptist challenged certain Pharisees and Sadducees who came to his baptism with the command that they bring forth, therefore, fruits needed for fruits meet for repentance and think not to say within yourselves we have Abraham to our father for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham indeed many of the Pharisees and Sadducees were children of Abraham through Esau and couldn't bring fruits worthy of repentance. 
not through Jacob or the children of the promise. And even if Yahweh did raise up children to Abraham from stones, that would still not make those children the heirs of the promises. Christ told those same leaders of Judea that if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham, proving to them that they could not possibly do well. At some point in the future, all men will indeed be like Paul, because all of the enemies of Yahweh our God shall be as though they had never been. And that is also a Christian promise. Verse 30. Then, and, and the majority text has, then upon his saying these things, then the king arose, and the governor, and Bernike, and those who gathered with them. And departing, they spoke to each other, saying that this man does nothing worthy of death or bonds. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man was able to have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. And we saw in Acts chapter 25 that Agrippa knew that the Judeans wanted to kill Paul. As Festus had informed him, introducing Paul, that all the multitudes had entreated him that it is no longer fitting for Paul to live. It may be conjectured that it is unlikely that even Agrippa had influence enough over these people to keep them from such a deed. From the pages of Josephus, it can indeed be told that the high priests and the Sadducees were constantly acting in their own narrow interests at this time. And several times in this period, Agrippa was forced to change the high priests because they were always exceeding their authority. Herod's reply is therefore to maintain the status quo and to admit that Paul was innocent, but to encourage Festus to send him to Caesar regardless. And of course, that was the will of Yahweh that Paul go to Rome We are not ever told what it was that Porcius Festus may have written to Nero concerning Paul of Tarsus. That was the purpose for this hearing. The outcome is not recorded. However, it is evident that pronouncing that Yahshua is the Christ and that he alone is the true king, Paul is on a course... for an inevitable clash with an emperor who imagined himself to be a god. And Nero did. So there was no way Paul was going to get out of Rome alive. Especially with the history that Nero had with Christians, 
in 62-63-64 AD, when he was persecuting them rather, rather incessantly. Thank you for listening. I will be here tomorrow night with Pragmatic Genesis Part 13 and the story of Jacob and Esau. We began it last week, but could hardly get into it before we decided that the program was long enough. We will, Yahweh willing, present it tomorrow. I will be here next week with Acts chapter 27. And I'll probably talk a little about the epistle to the Hebrews, which Paul had to write while he was a prisoner in Caesarea. Good night. Praise Yahweh.